Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode of Out West is the first in a series regarding the WGA Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign. The campaign encourages land managers, landowners, conservation groups, and NGOs to standardize and share invasive species data in the West. Today's podcast highlights the importance of invasive species data for conservation districts. In this episode, Bill Whitaker, Senior Policy Advisor at WGA, speaks with Keith Owen, the South Central Region Representative for the National Association of Conservation Districts. They will discuss how invasive species impact the work of conservation districts and why it is important to share invasive species data. Hello, this is Bill Whitaker, Senior Policy Advisor at the Western Governors Association, here for the first podcast in the WGA Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign. I'm joined today by my guest, Keith Owen, the South Central Representative for the National Association of Conservation Districts. Hello, Keith. Happy to be here, Bill. Appreciate it. Um, And can you just very briefly tell me about the National Association of Conservation Districts and what you do? Absolutely. We're the organization that is the voice for grassroots conservation with the 3,000 conservation districts across the U.S. and its territories. Uh, Conservation districts are the local unit of government that are charged with uh, applying conservation programs. Um, What we really concentrate on is the idea that local problems are best solved locally. Locally led conservation is is the way to go to, to get to those answers with natural resource concerns. One thing I've learned working on invasive species is that everyone has a story about how it impacts their life. So I'm curious, how has invasive species impacted your life or your hometown or a place you grew up or the way that you work or just any place that you love? You bet. I grew up in Oklahoma, northeast Oklahoma. I've worked all over the country for various state federal agencies, but have always managed to come back home and uh, now live in the central part of Oklahoma. Uh, I can remember as a kid, feral hogs, feral swine, it was just an occasional thing. Uh, it wasn't something that you saw every day. It wasn't that you saw something you saw every week or perhaps month. Generally, the hogs that you did see, um, the portion of Oklahoma I grew up in, the eastern half or even eastern quarter, um, Oklahoma's one of those states where we have both kinds of music, country and western. Mm-hmm. So the east part of the state is truly more southeast. The west part of the state is truly more southwest. And cultural habits in that part of the state were to run your pig herds um, on common ground. Um, And then as the state got more populous, people owned more property, um, that cultural aspect carried through. So most of the ferals or the most of the pigs you saw running around in the woods belonged to someone. Um, As those herds started to increase, we saw the population in feral swine And the definition of feral swine is just basically a pig that's not inside a fence. Mm. Uh, So the populations of feral swine increased, and now they are to the point that uh, the Oklahoma Farm Bureau has talked about the cost in insurance payments due to people hitting feral hogs on the highway in their vehicles. I mean, when an insurance company starts looking at, we need to do something about this threat because it's costing our insurance company a lot of money, that's serious. That's a big problem. Um, damaged, again, damaged agricultural fields. Uh, I've seen um, Bermuda grass pastures, uh, both for grazing and for hay cutting, that 
you know, they're going to have to go in, retill the ground, relevel it because of the way these the hogs feed. They they root the the roots up. They cause big holes. Uh, you can't run a tractor on that. You'll damage a tractor. So they have to go in, recontour the land, replant the grass, and basically start all over again. That's a lot of a lot of expense. Um, the uh, pork industry in Oklahoma has re- released reports looking at transmission of what were once eradicated livestock diseases that are now a, a reservoir of those diseases in these feral swine populations. Um, good news is, uh, through Farm Bill um, and NACD's activities to uh, you know, further the advocacy of the Farm Bill, there's a project through NRCS and APHIS, uh, Nat- the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the Animal Plant Inspection Health Service, uh, to do pilot projects in 10 states across the U.S., um, about two projects in each state to look at feral swine control. Uh, these are all set up through the state APHIS offices and the state offices of the uh, of NRCS and really tailor them to each state as pilot projects. So there's finally some recognition that this is a problem, that it costs a lot of money. Uh, the Noble Research Institute found... They say, you know, uh, uh, on average, a single feral pig, feral hog, uh, on a a year will do $200 worth of damage. Um, In Oklahoma alone, again, it's hard to count loose pigs, but they say there's somewhere between, you know, 950,000 and 1.3 million. That's a lot of pigs. Add that per year, $200 a piece, that's a lot of damage. That is a lot of money. So, and and again, the, the threat's been recognized. They're looking to do something about it. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And that's just, that's one species. Exactly. Um, in one area and the amount of work that goes on there. Um, they move. They move fast. Yes, they do. It's not a tree. Yes. It's not- well, and, and the one thing that they're finding is you can go in and through various means remove them. But if you don't maintain control, they'll move right back in again. Mm-hmm. So they really will. Yeah. No, it's definitely a challenge. Are there any other invasive species anecdotes that you'd like to share from your experience? Well, we've got to mention the giant hogweed, the plant that the juice melts your skin off your body. We actually do have to mention that. I didn't okay. realize how... It is horrible. I get a lot of digital feeds on new and emerging invasive species, and the one I most recently received is called uh, giant hogweed. It is a native of Eurasia, predominantly the, the, the Russian Federation, former Russian Federation, it looks a lot like our native uh, cow parsnip, um, same type of umbelliferate or umbrella-shaped flowers. But the juice from it, it, it literally reacts with your DNA, and it causes extreme reaction to ultraviolet light. So it is anti-sunscreen. And within minutes of exposure to the plant juice, you could get third-degree burns wherever that substance hits you so a lot like when we take antibiotics and in in the doctor tells you to stay out of the sun because it makes you more reactive to the sun this is that kind of thing times 100 and the photos i've seen of people's feet people's hands that's literally nothing but blisters and their flesh melting off of them so it's a radiation burn basically Basically, it is it's it's, you're exactly right and predominantly the northeast uh tier states coming down through illinois some into iowa and then washington and oregon is where it is right now so what do you people do about that because if if that it's that toxic to your skin how do who's going out in the field to actually deal with this as far as you know getting rid of it i don't know uh you know obviously you're 
personal protection equipment, your PPE is very important. But what they found is people don't recognize it as a problem. It looks enough like a native plant. If you're out clearing brush on a, on a fence line or in an old farmyard, you know, you get out there with your weed whacker and you spray that stuff all over. Um, what they're finding now is that it is uh, responsive to, you know, regular uh, herbicides and that kind of thing. And they're, they're killing it out, but then they have to harvest the, the remaining vegetative material almost like a toxic waste. Hmm. Um, so the pictures that I saw, I'm sure they were kind of glammed up a little bit, but the guys had the full, you know, bright green suit with the mask and the gloves and, you know, like they were responding to a radiation leak or something. So what happens if this takes over? This seems like horror movie apocalyptic. Exactly. Well, you know, you you look at some of the other invasive species that we have, things like fire ants that are, uh, they they can be terminal to to livestock. Um, There's people that have such severe reactions that puts them in the hospital. We, We already have those invasive species that can harm, that are detrimental to life and health to the same point. Uh, I think this one's get a lot of press now because the fa- the photos are very uh, fantastic and, and very eye-catching. But uh, you look at some of the other invasive species that we have, they can cause just as much harm. Um, and that's kind of part of the problem with invasive species. Once they get here, there's not a lot we can do about them. We just kind of almost have to live with some of them. Um, the idea that, you know, what what's... What's the biggest problem with invasive species? Managing natural resources, managing the landscape is complicated to begin with. Uh, It's a lot like playing chess or maybe even playing checkers. Uh, You throw invasive species into the mix. It's like trying to play chess with monopoly pieces on the board. They don't belong in the game. Um, And as you know, we've, we've said a lot of these things, once they are in our ecosystem, uh, it harms biodiversity. Um, it harms the production of, uh, agricultural processes. Uh, it gives lots of problems on our rangeland. And I think why this giant hogweed has caught everyone's eye is that it tends to grow in, uh, urban waste spaces as well. Uh, empty lots, old lots. And uh, it's it's kind of come to the social eye for that reason, and it's it's pretty too. I mean, it it, it's, it, it looks nice. It's like not bright, bl- you know, black and red like a Gila monster or anything. Yeah. You're right; it is an attractive it's, flower. It's pretty benign looking, so I can see that's part of the challenge. No, that's interesting. I learn about that, and um, earlier today we were able to learn about rat lung, lungworm disease, and rat, that's terrifying. Yes. If yes. I got the name right, but. it is in in what the there's a complex again there. Um, it's uh, a parasite in the pulmonary tissue of rats. Uh, where they're having a lot of this trouble is in Hawaii. Uh, and there were no really native mammals in the, you know, native rats in that area. That's human introduction. Uh, there's a, what they call a semi-slug, which is an intermediate host for this lung parasite. And what's happening is during this normal parasitic cycle, um, through various different ways, it gets introduced into a human body. And because that particular parasite isn't designed to be to operate inside a human body, it can actually cause terminal illness. Uh, there's uh, mostly susceptible um, young 
young folks, kids, and the immunocompromised, like older folks and that kind of thing. They've had some fatalities on the, in the islands because of it. Well, yeah, the stakes are high. I mean, I think sometimes people think about invasive species management like it's it's thistles, and right. which do have impacts on landscapes right. on large scales, but it can be serious. I mean, there's yeah. the way you look at it, it could be West Nile. I mean, that's, that, that's an invasive species, yeah. and that's done untold damage to uh, the communities in the West. So exactly. it's serious business. Well, you look at the definition of an invasive species, it's any living thing plant animal you know insects or animals of course bacterias that are out of their native zone or their you know original ecosystem we have invasive species that are native to north america but because of mismanagement uh, misguided management things like the eastern red cedar are invasive but they're native but they are outside of where their role in the original ecosystem so now I, I don't know if Eastern Red Cedars killed anybody, but it's still a problem. Yeah, if you're a landowner and it's, it's <laughs> taking over, it's changing the way you use your land. That is a big deal. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I feel like you might have uh, touched on this already, but I'm just curious. Uh, to get into our set of questions. I'm working down to these four. So first, why should people care about invasive species? I think you listed a do- couple dozen ways. I, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, harm to human health uh, is probably one of, would be the top the top reason. Um, Everyone pays the cost to agriculture that invasive species cause, uh, whether you're the farmer that, that pays it on their land or you're the consumer that pays it through buying those products. Um, other things like our, our rangeland uh, is less productive. Some of our farmland can be less productive. You look at things, and, and I'll probably hit on this again. This is kind of one of my pet things is feral swine. Uh, not only are they they damage agricultural property, but they carry like 32 different diseases that hum- that are communicable with humans. Well, wow. And uh, so you have risk to human health, you have risk to additional livestock health, you have damage to agricultural properties, um, and you also have, you know, damage as they, the populations really increase, they're encroaching into suburban and even into uh, to urban communities and I was talking to a gentleman from uh, Guam, and he says they do not let their kids in their neighborhood play of an evening because the feral hogs will come, come through the neighborhood and they're scared their kids will get hurt. Um, that's, that's pretty serious. What I've learned over my past few years working on invasive species is that trying to account for the cost of invasive species is almost impossible. There really aren't any good estimates of the cost of invasive species, in part because it impacts everything. You have to start counting everything. It's money on money and impact on impact. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, why data is important. Um, Assessing or evaluating that damage is a data point that's that's crucial um, because how do you know how much money it's going to take to fix a problem if you don't know the extent of the problem? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, it's probably very easy to underestimate. Exactly. And you've mentioned some of the work being done to help manage invasive species. The Western Governors Association is launching an invasive species data mobilization campaign. And part of that campaign is designed to help improve access and standardization of invasive species current state in the West and to help enable invasive species managers to make good decisions about how to manage the land. In your experience in the field, how does good invasive species data lead to good decision making? Well, the difference between science and just folks in khaki pants running around in hiking boots is data. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, and we talked briefly about uh, evaluating the damage, 
and you don't know how what it takes to fix a problem until you know what the problem is. Then once you get into it, and you, you know some of these invasive species may be more widespread than we thought they were. They may be causing more damage. They may be not as widespread as we thought. Um, a lot of uh, invasive species reports are, are incidental. Could be uh, they're closely related to a native plant, a native insect, a native animal, and they're misidentified. So we we need to know what we what we need to fix before we can apply the money and the effort to fix it. Um, the other thing is you can't tell your story without data. Um, funding agencies, funding organizations, they want to know if their money's being spent well. And if you can't say we had a hundred of them to start with, and through our efforts this entire year, we only have 15 left. So you can't, you can't show your success and tell your story without data and without comparable data. The idea that some data is in blue, some data is in green, some data is in red, bring it all in and put it in black and white. And then states can start comparing notes. Uh, control in one state, if we control the feral swine population in Oklahoma, if Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana, which is my region that I represent the National Association for Conservation Districts with, if they're not applying the same control methods, all we're really doing is running them out of Oklahoma into those other states. But if we have data showing that there's been control in populations, and again, hard to count pigs, I, we keep using that as an example, but the way they look at uh, control on those is they're trying to decrease damage. They go in, they assess the uh, damage to agricultural lands, to wildlife lands, to grange lands, and they're uh, applying efforts to say decrease that damage by 80%. Um, whether that's you know getting rid of one pig or getting rid of one million pigs, as long as that damage is decreased, then they can show effectiveness in their control programs. It's a scientific enterprise. It might not feel that way. I've spent Absolutely. a lot of my life spraying Russian olive, and it doesn't feel scientific. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Yes, I mean, yeah. you have to have a method while you're going out there. Absolutely. Doing that. Um, no, I think that's a great perspective. So, why should people participate in this campaign, and why should people work to help standardize and mobilize invasive species data? Well, and I think it's great that the Western Governors Association has taken this on because uh, the WJ is at a level above, you know, state lines, above political boundaries. Um, being part of this initiative can get what work you've done recognized if you already have a data set. It can make sure your data is comparable to other data, and it might help someone with the same problem in another state solve theirs. Um, a lot of what I do with NACD and conservation districts is getting different states together and sharing success stories. And uh, I think sharing this data will help with that. And again, there's not really any one data collection service or data collection place to store all this. And we have a hard time saying, what is the total impact of invasive species in the United States? Uh, I work a lot with the uh, Invasive Species Council through USDA. And I made a, just a telephone call. Just I was doing a briefing for a resource pol policy group that I'm uh, staffing. And I said, what's the total dollar amount on invasive species damage across the United States? They didn't have a good answer. Um, and this is, I mean, not their fault. Uh, there's just nowhere to go to look that up. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation. It's been great talking with you, and I look forward to working with you on the campaign. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on WGA's Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss critical issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Keith Owen for sharing his expertise on the work of conservation districts to combat invasive species. Happy trails, everyone.